Well, Nathan, we wanted to get into this um, little piece of current events in our province. Kind of an interesting story out of Prince George that the Northern Health Authority here in BC was was given a $355,000 fine after failing to complete safety investigations of their sites. Mm. And this is a, a fine imposed on them by by WorkSafe BC and kind of kind of interesting story because this doesn't happen a whole lot. And to me, I, I know that health authorities have that anytime there are workplace injuries, there are issues of compensation and and premiums can go up for employers and stuff like that. But three hundred and fifty thousand dollars is not nothing. Like that's getting into a bit more of a significant penalty for an employer, even if it's as big as a health authority. I've got the article in front of me. This is out of Prince George. And what it says here, I won't read the whole thing, but Work, WorkSafe BC levied a $355,000 administrative penalty on our health authority for failing to conduct adequate workplace in- inspections following reports from nurses and other healthcare workers about ongoing safe- safety issues at a Fort St. John facility, dating back to May. The president has serious concerns as to whether this penalty is indicative indicative of a systemic oversight by health employers and the government on the issue of violence, health, and safety. That's a nice statement she makes there. <laughs> you know, like that, that, that's a very, uh, that's a well-crafted little piece of prose there. Yeah. Because it it says a lot. It says it nicely. But at the same time, yeah, you guys might want to think about what's going on here, you know? Well, yeah. And this is the end of 2022. And anyone who's been a healthcare worker for the last 15 years or more, but, you know, in my life experience in the last 15 years, violence has been a part of the of the job, unfortunately, for that whole time. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> is yeah. there an oversight? Well, it, Again, language is so important here. It's it's an oversight or it's a an under the carpet sweep job. <laughs> yeah. Uh yeah, that's a nice little uh I like that uh statement there. But anyways, please. I, uh, the fact is all provincial health authorities use the same provincial reporting system and we know that there are issues within the system as we've seen this with this penalty. The nurses union added similar issues have been seen in other health authorities including on Vancouver Island which was ordered to engage in in a compliance agreement with WorkSafe for poorly conducted safety investigations and low safety training rates. The BCNE were calling on the government to audit all occupational health and safety reports from the last year to ensure investigations are conducted and that corrective actions are put in place to keep health workers safe. (laughs) Could you imagine if you're you know, anywhere in the upper echelon of a health authority and you're, you're reading that statement. I mean, I don't know if this is kind of like a, a warning shot or it seems to me, this is something that should have been done. I don't know, 10 years ago, at least. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it, it, it's so odd the way this, this stuff works. And I, you know, I know we're limited in information and, and uh, even, understanding of the information that we have, but I've got another article here. I guess sure, we can sure. add a little bit to it. On their on WorkSafe DC's website, the agency inspected a long-term care facility in Fort St. John, BC in response to an incident of violence against a worker. 
The agency found the investigation reports for that incident and several past incidents lacked key information, such as underlying causes and corrective actions, uh, which is, I mean, to me, that means they just were maybe filed and not done, right? Yeah. The employer failed to ensure a report of its full investigation was prepared in accordance with their guidelines. Uh, and it was, uh, this was a repeated violation at the same site. So they'd probably been warned multiple times. And then uh, Northern Health makes this nonsense statement about how they are the safest place in the world. So I didn't know that this was such a prevalent thing. But in 2021, there were 4,438 reported incidents of violence in BC's healthcare sector. That's a lot for a year. I mm -hmm. mean, uh, my God. With 721 of those incidents turning into time loss claims uh, and uh, WorkSafe BC compensation payouts, working out to approximately $7 million. So could you describe to us what would be considered, uh, like what would be reported as, as violence for uh, a nurse uh, when yeah. working? Oh, verbal threats? Like name I'm calling? Gonna, okay, like I'm going to beat the violence? shit out of you or I'm going to kill you or yep. something. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Um, I've had, I've been called, called names, sworn at. Uh, I've had the threat of, you know, I'm going to wait for you in the parking lot. Mm -hmm. um, I've had that specific threat. And then escalating to physical altercations, to nurses being grabbed. Now, may, that may be by a patient with dementia or a patient with cognitive impairment, but it may also be by a strapping, you know, young male patient or family member. Okay. And is this, so in these violent acts that they're counting here, that includes patients who, because I know some, if, if you're on a ward where it's all cognitive deficiencies and, and stuff like that, there can be a lot of uh, hypersexuality, violence, all these aggression, things yep. that would lead to violence anyways. So yep. those are counted as well. Yeah. It's encouraged now that, that even those things are counted. Okay. Yeah, and that the perception of violence can be counted. And you know, I I even recall one incident where I was slapped um, by a patient, by a female patient, and <laughs> and it the patient was was confused, and it to me it wasn't a big deal. Like it was, I was fine to continue working. I was slapped on the on the on the upper arm, and and was fine. Well, now, it left. What a, did you do to her, Corey? What what what, what you what was going I, on? You know, I think we were I think we were trying to redirect this patient back into bed, and they and they turned around and and slapped me in the arm, and it left a palm print. And <laughs> jeez, yeah. And I remember just being like, "Oh no, no, it's fine." And I was like strongly encouraged that even even that report it, and at least so that there's documentation of it. There wasn't any follow through. It wasn't a, it wasn't anything that I missed any time off for, but the, those things are need to be reported for statistics and, um, and for reporting. So, so it, it could be something as small as that, or it could be something as large as incidences that I am aware of individuals who never went back to work after a, after a violent assault, by a patient or patients assault with weapons in some cases. Um, yeah. That's the extent that we're talking about here. So here's what I think is coming though too. I mean, and I know that there are the occupational health and safety committees look at, you know, at, at floor plans and, and designs and egress and, and all those types of factors. But we also know that, that one of the big factors for, for violence or threats of violence are the wait times 
and oh. and yeah. so this week in in our province um the children's hospital let this past weekend reported 12 hour plus waits for for children and their families waiting for to access the er and the public health implications of that are that's a whole other conversation and and the attention it and rightly so, is primarily on the fact that our children in our province are having to wait that long for healthcare. The other side of that, though, is, is the stress and the tension that that is putting on the system that then, without question, increases the risk for either verbal or physical violence towards healthcare workers. And I think I, I have been in that position where there have been extreme wait times, and that's when people are frustrated. People are pissed off. People are tired. People are scared. And those are risk factors for, for violence at the workplace. Well, it's their, especially if you're talking about their kids, like, uh, yeah, I believe, um, in Kelowna, they just lost, a, a, I think she was a nine-year-old girl to, um, was it scarlet fever and pneumonia, something like that, but it was missed. Uh, she did get into the ER and it was missed on the original diagnosis mm-hmm. and likely due to rushing and, uh, she died. Yeah. And this, this is going to be, uh, I think we're going to, to me, that's a, you know, a consequence of, of the changes that have been made to our structure yes. over the last little while here. And we're, we're trying to piece things back together, but we've, you know, we've got immune systems that are not exposed. We've got bugs that are now more vicious. We've got all sorts of different things to contend with. But the fact that uh, our wait times are, are so preposterous, if I could solve this one source of stress in pharmacy somehow, if I could get rid, rid of the stress of knowing that there's people waiting, I don't mm-hmm. know why that bothers me so much, Yeah, but I just... I. I can't imagine what it would be, what it would be like from a nurse's perspective, where you know that you've got people out there who are in serious shape, maybe in really bad pain, like intolerable uh, nausea, uh, maybe life-threatening situation. They're waiting there sometimes for hours. And then how are you supposed to even, I would just feel like a jackass immediately mm-hmm. for being in, for working in a place that was so prepared for what its function is yeah i mean that must have killed you man like it it did i I had that what you're saying is absolutely how i felt um and it's a helpless powerless very stressful feeling you know i i a a memory comes to mind where in the hospital i was working in there had been a, a pediatric death that had occurred earlier in the week and we were just maxed out we were just full to the brim in the er with patients the whole week it was just a really busy week i think it was probably in the winter and it was just packed and uh and the wait times were they weren't 12 hours but they were long and uh, a patient spouse came up to me and said you know how long is it going to be my wife is really sick and i was apologetic and said yeah i i I'm sorry, sir. I don't know how much longer it'll be kind of a thing and he said well you that's right you you just kill children here don't you and 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 so there you go. So there's an, and that that was devastating to me. And I this was shortly before I kind of broke, so to speak. And that has stuck with me. I still remember it so well. And how that how you could say anything other than that being an incident of violence, us making a statement like that, 
and I remember I said, how dare you? And I, I kicked him out. <laughs> well, <laughs> and, pretty good restraint there. <laughs> yeah. But I can't help but think about Children's Hospital this past weekend and the 12-hour waits and how much, you know, how many times little microaggressions or larger aggressions were were sort of inflicted upon healthcare workers. And what I would like to see to, to kind of bring it back to the original story out of Prince George, what if you, what if when a 12 hour wait occurred, what if you find the health authority and said, there you go, $350,000 or maybe less, maybe it was a hundred thousand dollars every time there's a 12 hour wait or something like that. Yeah. There could be something done there. You know, what about that? Hit him where it hurts. One thing that I've always thought would, would help at least a little bit I'd help a lot in, in rural communities where they have limited resources is if they instilled just a $10 service charge at the counter, whenever you go to the ER, that's all just $10 or a walk-in clinic, it's just 10 bucks. Yeah. But what that would do, although with inflation, we might, <laughs> uh, but maybe make that 20 now, uh, it has to be enough so that, <laughs> you know, you should have to think a little bit before you just walk into the emergency or just walk into a uh, walk-in clinic. Don't just show up to the doctor because you walked by a clinic and thought, hey, why not? I'll go in and see what's happening. Mm -hmm. We don't have the resources for that anymore. And I know people would freak out, that it wouldn't be free healthcare. Well, you know, it's not really free healthcare anyway, guys. It's it's us pooling our money together to try and help each other when we need it the most. That's what is going on here. So I don't know if that would, what that would translate into, but I do know that uh, whether you're working in a pharmacy, hospital, walking clinic, whatever, there's those type of patients who are there because they're bored. You know, there's, there's patients who are there because they want to talk to somebody. There's patients who you see them every week. They're, mm-hmm. they're like repeat offender patients. They just mm-hmm. rotating through the door and they, you know, you see them and you know, what, what can we do for you? Oh, well, I just had this one concern. And, you know, the doctor has a hell of a time getting them out. They, now, so, so they burn up like two spots, right? For nothing. Yeah. And it's not that we shouldn't do something to help those people, but it's not that. Those people right. need some kind of social intervention. Yeah. So I don't know. What do you think? Do you, do you think that would alleviate some, some of the uh, yeah, pressure? Yeah, it, it would. It, it certainly would. I've had that thought before, too. It can't be a barrier. You know, we, we can't have people staying at home to avoid the, the service charge and then they die of some preventable illness or, or something like that. So I don't know. <sighs> that has to be managed. But I think there's a devaluation that goes on in people's minds as well, where they they feel they're entitled to whatever. Like, I want, I don't like that doctor. I want this other doctor and I want to. I want to have all these items treated and I want these reports and blah, 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 blah. And nobody seems to understand about time and resources. I don't know. But it is, it is also, to me, what is happening is the health authorities are, whether they're comfortable or not, they are, they seem to be willing to continue on for as long as they can, as the, as the ship is sinking, like they're, they're willing to put the staff they have under an immense amount of stress. And, Mm. And so whether the penalties should be to the health authority specifically or whether they should be somehow, and this is the whole thing with regionalization is that, that it's the region that gets dinged. 
but it is the administration of the hospital that is then accountable to the greater health authority that makes those small micro decisions that impact that 12-hour period, I think. And for example, last weekend in, in Vancouver, when they, you know, these 12-hour wait times, a code orange was called. And a code orange is like the code for a natural disaster or a mass casualty incident. So it is the code that can that can trigger more staff to come in where they can get people discharged. Like you're saying, the person who's just there farting around, get them discharged and home, create the space, get excess patients moved up to wards, create space in the ER. And that code was called on the weekend in Vancouver. And a half an hour later, it was, it was canceled. And I know, and that code is part of that process is to bring in extra staff. 30 minutes later, it was canceled. And I have to wonder, like, is the, was that because it's going to cost them money? They want to, as best they can, say, oh, no, we've got it under control now. Well, you can't tell me that a half an hour later, it was under control. Can't be. Impossible. No. Yeah, certainly not uh, possible. I'm thinking about this from a punitive point of view here. If you've got a certain accountability, you basically have to go up the list through the departments in each hospital and then from the hospital to the health authority and all the way up to yeah. Adrian Dix and, and decide who, and I imagine this itself would be a goddamn nightmare because they probably don't have a very good structure as to <laughs> who's yeah. responsible for what. Yeah. But at some point, uh, I suppose you could go after, like there's a hospital administrator, correct? Um, correct. And this would be considered the this is the main person who's overseeing the entire operation. So I imagine that person uh, gets paid a, a decent salary. Handsomely, yep. So I know that there can be efficiencies created in that echelon. I know there's a lot of money wasted there, along with other areas in the hospital. But as far as, as somebody taking responsibility, why is that administrator, you'd say, well, I'm working within a budget. Well, then you've got to advocate for a bigger budget or limit the number of patients. Say this is not a hospital anymore that can do this uh, instead of a hospital that has a hundred beds, declare yourself a hospital that has 50. Mm -hmm. Well, then my budget will shrink. Well, okay. Then you got to go to the next person. Now, why aren't you giving this guy enough money to, <laughs> to, uh, to run his hospital properly? And I, I don't know where you'd land at, at the person or the group of people. This is the diffusion of responsibility principle that's rampant in all corporate culture and all government mm -hmm. especially, right? But uh, it's a weird, isn't it? Yeah. Like, what, what is the motive here? Is this all incompetence? Is it all just poor money management, corruption? Or is there more than that? Are, you know, is there forces actually trying to put pressure on our system to drive it into the ground uh, and pave the way for privatization. Yeah. Sometimes I can't help but think that there's got to be exterior corporate motivation to, you know, start picking at those areas, right? Like, Hey, you know what? We see you're having a big problem on that ward. We got people here. They're all trained up. Why don't you just contract out to us? We'll come in. We'll take over that problem for you bang, that's one in there, you know, and then one section at a time, all of a sudden you're, you're privatized. Well, yeah. And I, you know, I, it's, it's a, a good question. I think that two things for one, we, we are clinging to the, to the Tommy Douglas style of, 
of public health care that was invented at a time when the population of Canada was so, so different than it is now. And the needs mm. are so were so, so different. And we're trying to cling to that. And I also think now, I mean, regionalization came to be in our province uh, in about 2000, 2001, something like that. And that saw, instead of hospital administrators having their own sort of pool of money, it saw larger pools, much larger pools were formed. And our province was broken into, uh, you know, about what, eight segments instead of each hospital sort of being freestanding and independently operating. They are all clumped into these health authorities. That's a problem. So now we have haves and have nots. Mm -hmm. Now we have individual hospitals answering to uh, answering and being accountable to a health authority that is doling out money and support. Too much potential for, uh, too much potential for corruption right there. There's lots of potential for that there. And yeah. and you have communities that are suffering. I think we have health authorities that are suffering, um, both by overpopulation down here in the South, and then going back to the re- original story that we shared in about underfunding and a lack of attention and just being sort of forgotten up in the North. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't make sense. Um, I think we modify our system based on the needs at the time. And we have to keep, it has to be evolving. It has to be something that we continue to look at and change. Because right now it seems like it's sinking and not sort of adapting. Yeah, we're, we're running on like uh, emergency resources as it is, right? I mean, yeah, I don't know what the ratio is, but how many hospitals do you think are being staffed on a regular basis now by like travel nurses? How many hospitals? Yeah, like how many wards oh. do you think are... Like, or temporary staff that aren't usually there. Many, many, many. And those are more expensive. They, they can't be as, as uh, well-equipped for the job as somebody who knows the place and has been there for a while. Mm -hmm. So you're getting a decreased level of service for more money. And this has been going on. Well, it's been going on since probably the last 20 years, but the last two years has put it into a, like a death spiral. And I don't know, I, I, we seem to be a country with uh, uh, money that is <laughs> the same as the States. They just, they keep summoning up this money from somewhere. I don't, yeah. I don't know where, but they never summon enough for the important things, you know? Yeah. And I guess the last thing I would say is tying it back to our, our podcast and the themes of the things that we talk about is that the unspoken consequence of, of violence in the workplace of extreme congestion and stress and the disenfranchisement of, of a workforce is that you will have more people who are trying to cope and trying to self soothe. And, and there are more people in that whole world right now of healthcare workers who are struggling and to hear the government say, Oh, we're, we're talking about mental health and we're talking about addiction and we're trying to make this better. It's like, Oh, yeah, they either have no idea what's going on on the ground level or they're bullshitting, and it's both. Yeah. Walking into the, any pharmacy right now and seeing how if I was motivated to, to say, I, I was like, yeah, you know what? I'm going to go back and get a nice steady stream of pharmaceuticals going. Uh, this would not be a problem right now for me. Everything is in such a state of chaos in, in just that industry that it's going to take years to get back to where anybody knows what even happened. 
Yeah. And I'm sure that's kind of how record keeping is in the hospital right now too, right? Yeah. Yeah. So, so yeah, you got to wonder how many new problems is this generating with this immense, unreasonable and uh, violent workplace setting? And then, uh, and then the circumstances in which it allows uh, people to just go wild, right? Yeah. 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 I would, uh, I would expect to keep seeing more of the same. Yeah. Yeah. That's our uh, update on that situation. We'll keep you guys informed. Uh, there'll probably be a little bit of follow-up and then we'll see, we'll see what happens with WorkSafe BC and uh, are they bluffing or will they come for everyone? <laughs> <laughs> Find out on our next episode and please, if you're watching on YouTube, share, like, subscribe, comment, do whatever you got to do to express yourself so we can yep. hear from you. Yeah. And uh to our listeners, thank you very much for uh, tuning in, and uh, we'll talk soon. Talk soon. Thanks. All right, all right buddy.